Welcome to Off-Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. In this podcast, I talk with artists about their creative process, what excites them, ignites them, and gets them to that feeling of being off-leash. And what I mean by that is the joy you witness when a dog is released from its leash and just runs, following its instincts, going wherever its nose takes it. My guest today is multidisciplinary artist Gwyneth Van Laven. Her practice includes photography, installation, writing, performance, and social engagement. And I happen to know there's a history of clowning and juggling in there as well. Her visual and written works have been shown in numerous exhibitions and publications, including the Washington Post, the Smithsonian Institution, and the Kennedy Center. In addition to her solo art practice, she works as part of the Floating Lab Collective, a group of artists dedicated to social engagement and activism through interactive and inclusive art on a local, national, and international stage. She has taught visual thinking, aesthetics, and new media art at the School of Art at George Mason University in Virginia, until recently relocating to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I had the extreme good fortune of meeting her, getting to know her, and becoming her friend. You can see many examples of her stunning work on her website at GwynethFanLaven.net. So Gwyneth, welcome to Off Leash Arts. Thank you so much. Wow, that's humbling. It's nice to to have a conversation with you. It is my pleasure. The more time I spend with your work, the more I see in it. It's just so complex and layered and rich and funny. And on your website, in the section you call Compass, you write that your guiding principle is to challenge stigma by taking the flattened out stereotypes that people have about disability or difference in general and fleshing those out, making the two-dimensional, vividly three-dimensional, and blurring any line people might try to draw between the sick and the well or the disabled and the able. Can you talk a bit about that? Mm, That's a tough one. Uh, It feels uh, like a compass so central, my true north in a sense. I think my work often centers on a sense of social justice and morality. Mm -hmm. And so kind of comes from there and is an extension of this basic idea that we all belong together, uh, that divisions just don't serve. And I've been the sort of victim of the us-them much of my life. I kind of grew up different in so many ways. And um, also having the difference of being invisibly disabled for a long time. And then after an accident, visibly disabled, I've experienced kind of both ends of those prejudices. So that's something that I've uh, wanted to explore. When did the arts come into your life? I I see you as sort of a consummate artist, someone who was just always creating in different mediums. Did that start in childhood? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, I think of it as a language, really. And I think of it in many ways as my mother tongue. The visual as having a, a grammar and a structure and an incredible potential to sort of cut through. I think about verbal language for which I have an incredible affinity, as very linear. You know, the string of sounds is a string. And the visual uh, exists almost like a um, choose-your-own-adventure. So folks Mm. can kind of have an entry point in one part of an image and circle around and, and, you know, jump from thing to thing if they're 
drawn by color or by theme. So it's a kind of language that is so rich. So yeah, when I was a like a young toddler, I really had a hard time sort of modulating my feelings, just kind of getting them into words. And I was trying to be so perfect publicly that I would just melt down. And my mom sat down with me and we drew for words pictures and made a book. So there was an angry picture and a sad picture and a scared picture. And when I was having an overwhelming uh, soup of feelings, we would sit down and flip from picture to picture and I would get to point like, yeah, that one. (laughs) So yeah, I think it started very early on and then has continued with this drive to express what is inexplicable in in verbal language. So um, I had intense, intense physical pain, much of which was mysterious and and unknown to doctors, to, you know, everybody. And and the psychic pain that went along with that, I really wanted a way to talk about it. And so I learned a lot of modern verbal languages, each having their own special, you know, gift. Uh, Every language is better at one thing or another. But then when I finally came to the visual language, hospitalized as a young person, some art therapists came to my bedside. They gave me crayons and they said, draw your pain. And I was like, yes, (laughs) that's it. Draw my pain. It was like permission. It was like the floodgates opened. I remember sort of just tearing through paper And I remember uh, they took one as an example. I wish I had it. And it was my guardian angel engulfed in flames with, you know, a pitchfork. Like Wow. Do you remember how old you were when that um, happened? um, I think this was seventh grade. Um, Yeah, I was hospitalized for a while just trying to go through um, test after test after test Mm -hmm. um, to figure out what was wrong with me. And in creating the art around the pain, did that feel like a release? Like, did that bring you, what did that do for you in the midst of the pain? Mm. Okay, so it's interesting because I've heard some prejudice about uh, work that is therapeutic, right? It's almost like a hierarchy of, you know, fine arts and crafts. And the therapeutic is somehow self-indulgent. And it, it was therapeutic and it got it out in a juicy, juicy way. And I think one of the most important parts of it was this idea that the specificity of my narrative could connect to that of another. And I'm here in the hospital. You get to know the other patients. This is, you know, a unit of other seventh graders going through a mess of things. And just the opportunity to tell my story but in a way that we can access each other's. I love this idea. It's a sort of psycholinguistic theory on the the evolution of language that we speak to know we're not alone. You know, why did we develop language? And it's not, hey, where is the best hunting and the antelope are over there? Because that would be done just as well gesturally, right? I mean, I can point to the antelope or I can draw you a map, but we speak to say, oh my God, that was the biggest antelope I've ever seen. It came right at me and I was terrified. Have you ever felt that, right? I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. so we know that our experience is not a singular experience, that we are not alone. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of the excitement of work that is based in my own pain and experience and that can connect 
to that of others. Mm, Yeah. You mentioned the difference between visible and invisible disabilities. I know you've coped with an undiagnosed or misdiagnosed immune disorder for most of your life. And then in your late 20s, you were hit by a car in a brutal accident. And that moved you from an invisible disability to a highly visible disability involving wheelchairs and scooters and canes. In an essay you wrote in 2010 for the Washington Post, you talk about strangers coming up and trying to fix you. And you describe some very cringy moments that started to occur once you were in a wheelchair, such as a man approaching you in a store and squeezing your shoulder and saying, you store all your tension right here. Or random people coming up to you and telling you to take certain herbs. And you manage to describe this in a way that's both funny and also empathetic towards these people who are approaching you. And you really plumb the root of their behaviors in a very compassionate way. You draw a spectrum connecting these total strangers who are being intrusive to friends who are calling on their personal shamans and painting icons to watch over you. And you write, it is a real testament to the power of community, to the genuine caring we share for others in suffering. It is love, and this is powerful beyond my understanding. And then later in that same essay, you say, I have come to represent something in my visible fragility. I become their fears. I am vulnerability incarnate. Can you talk more about what you mean by that? Mm, You know, I think we see it. We project ourselves into everyone, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And when people see, in particular for me, when they hear my story, that becomes really scary. I, I was on a sidewalk, you know, yeah. and I got creamed against a building. So it's like the idea that at any moment that could be me is kind of terrifying. But mm-hmm. also we have these these weird thoughts that go through our heads. And I, I want to acknowledge that they're not always noble thoughts. And I want to acknowledge that I have them too. When I see someone and think, oh, thank God, that's not me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not sure I could handle that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are fears. I have a fear of growing old. And when I spend time in nursing homes in particular, I think about mortality. I think about losing your friends and becoming isolated. I've had experiences where I look at people and think, oh my goodness, how could I do that? What would it be like? And so I think we can all connect to looking at someone and, and, you know, something in them triggers fear. Mm -hmm. So the idea of the uncertain experience right now of pandemic and quarantine, we now may have a better understanding of our fears of the unknown. I mean, we don't know what the quote new normal will be. So the vulnerability, fragility of humanity and the unknown, all of those things have thrown our psyches into tailspin. And you see folks without even pre-existing mental health concerns suddenly having major depressions and anxieties. And so I think this is a perfect example of a time when like everyone's in a wheelchair suddenly and <laughs> humanity is is you know, fragile and and humanity's on a sidewalk getting pinned against a building in a sense, right? And we think, oh, am I high risk? Well, maybe that doesn't matter. And there are a lot of what ifs and there's a lot of, will this ever happen again? It's interesting. Yeah, we're kind of doing it on a big scale. Right. Mortality is very up for everyone right now, I'd say. It's on everyone's mind in in a new way. 
You did an interactive performance event here in Ann Arbor in which you were dressed as Waldo from the Where's Waldo book series. And you asked others to join you on mobility scooters and other mobility devices wearing Waldo outfits and holding Waldo dolls. And there are images of this on your website in a gallery called Hidden in Plain Sight. I know that event had to do with feeling both visible and invisible as a disabled person. Can you talk more about that? Mm, Yeah, sure. So actually, one of the questions that comes up in people's minds is sexuality and um, like, oh, how, you know, can that person have sex or does that, you know, Mm. and but most often my experience was that it was just kind of as soon as I was visibly disabled, it was just completely out of the picture. And I was, I was in my twenties when it happened. So being suddenly sexually invisible was kind of a a shocker. Um, And being sort of a token. And that's part of what I was talking about when I talk about stigma. Because when we're faced with the uncertainty and terror of the unknown, you know, and, and complex reality of being disabled, what we do with it is we flatten it, we label it, we stick it in a blue box with a white wheelchair symbol, you know. So I end up feeling very, very flat. So Waldo is a very invisible character because. As soon as we find him, we flip the page. I don't know if everybody's familiar with the the Waldo series, but so we're looking for this guy and he's dressed in a certain way. So he's visible for the fact that he's got on a striped shirt, but then we're not really interested in anything about Waldo except that we found our token. And sometimes I feel like, you know, in an image, they want the, oh, quick, get the disabled girl in there, you know, like tokens work that way. But sometimes I feel like I stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, this is actually speaking, I, I want to acknowledge that right now I have a the joy and privilege of walking without mobility aid. And it's, it's funny, like switching back and forth has been a strange shift. But at times when I depended on things like mobility scooters or electric wheelchairs, for example, sitting on a street corner in, in the dark, you are literally a sitting duck, right? So you're hyper visible and invisible. So yeah, that that duality is very interesting to me. On your website, there are three photo series that reflect directly on the incident with the car where this guy crushed you against a building and then backed up and did it again a couple more times. I wanted to talk a bit about the photography work you did around that one called Bear Witness you're interacting with a traffic cone and traffic barrels. And these images are both really disturbing and yet they're also tender. And the lighting is gorgeous. It's like a studio portrait session where there's the vibrant orange of the traffic cone and these sort of beautiful peach pink tones of your skin. And you're in sort of an almost in some ways intimate erotic relationship with the traffic cone. You're sort of flung across them in these positions of abandon that evoke a lot of different things. Like on the one hand, they have a kind of dancer like grace, but on the other hand, they have the kind of floppiness of a body that's unconscious. You write also about these traffic cones in a very tender way, like how you found them abandoned to rot in a median and tossed asunder. Tell me about what what went into creating that particular series. Well, I'll start with, there was a 
body of work just prior to that that involved the color fluorescent yellow green, which is um, the, the new official pedestrian safety color. I had some of those in a show at the Kennedy Center that you mentioned. It was um, really neat because my mom doesn't look too much like me. And so she's my plant and <laughs> I'm, I'm giving away my secrets now. So, <laughs> so she'll stand by the work and listen. And so at the opening, some people were looking at it and talking about something traumatic in their lives that they had experienced that it clearly was evoking for them. And then at some point after a long discussion about it, somebody said, oh, there's a statement. This is about someone. And that right there encapsulates my idea of success. I use myself, actually, you'll notice in all of my work, I start with the self and end with the self. I am the person I know best and it's less exploitative and, and there are so many reasons that it's always me. But the, um, the success is that it's not about me, right? We can transcend or it's not even transcending, it's connecting, but they're connecting to something that is first in themselves and then and then to the other. So mm-hmm. I just thought like that it just encapsulated exactly what I was looking for. So in that sense, the traffic barrel is really that intermediary for me. It's me connecting to, I sort of anthropomorphize these beings. They're beautiful. They're so, you know, vibrant and there's a reflectivity, which is also, we could go into a million metaphors about the reflective, but, you know, they get mangled and I feel mangled and they get grimy and I feel grimy and And sometimes they look to me almost innocent, you know, these virgin ones that just have no idea of what's to become of them. And it's like, guys, be careful, you know? (laughs) So I think (laughs) it started with that empathy for these inanimate cones or barrels. Oh, and you wrote, yet they stand still at attention, holding vigil bare to the world. So they're like these brave souls, right? Oh, totally. (laughs) I think they also helped me quite a bit. I have to say that um, the experience of walking on a sidewalk, third day of grad school, and having this car just jump the barrier from the parking lot and careen and, and crush over and over again, that um, was traumatic. And so being in cars for a long time, being near cars was a really difficult challenge. So it's been a journey. And uh, so as I'm driving past, you know, speeding bullets on the road, I'm looking for these, this army of cones that will bear witness and hold me, you know, and hold themselves and that we have this thing in common, you know, we're telling each other the stories. I got pinned under a truck. How about you? (laughs) So, um, so yeah. And then I think the performance element is a big part of that work too. And the, um, the discovery and the mindfulness. And so I go into a sense of flow because I, I really later have no idea what I did until I look at the images, but I don't plan how I'm going to interact with the object. So um, we'll surreptitiously pluck one of these from the road. Now, they're always ones that, like you said, have been tossed asunder, not ones that would be protecting someone, which means they're usually pretty mangled. I have a ridiculous garage full of them and a little bit of a ridiculous fight with my folks over their garage space, too. 
<laughs> I kind of spread like gas any space I have. But um, yeah, so I, I take these objects and um, I'm like, okay, you know, it wants to be rocked. I want to be rocked. You know, we're going to rock together. And this rocking becomes a dance and we're in a tango and, and then we're in a tangle. And then I'm riding it like a bull rider and trying to stay on. And so all of the sort of ways that bodies kind of interact, yeah, entangle with each other and, and die and, and are born. Um, you know, I, I mm. stuck my head all the way through a, a mangled cone and, and given birth to myself. I've reached inside the cavity of, of one of these barrels and, um, you know, explored my, my innards, you know, whatever um, needs to happen with these objects comes up in the moment. There are many things I'll look back and I'm like, oh my God, what was I thinking? (laughs) You know, like maybe that wasn't the best position or whatever. How are you recording it when you're doing that physical improv? Are you videotaping or do you have like a remote uh, where you're snapping photos when you're like, oh, this is a cool position, snap. Or how does that work? <laughs> yeah, a little of both. I would say um, it feels like the right moment for the stills. Like I'll, I'll just kind of arrive at a place. And so those are taken either with my mouth where I, I'll put like the remote in my lips. I, I go through a lot of remotes. I step on them inside a cone. So generally you don't see uh, the mechanics of making but I'm always in control of the moment that the shutter goes off. And then, yeah, sometimes I'll do video. I feel like the experience that um, Bear Witness, that, that body of work calls for, is very much snapshot. Because it feels like what happened in the accident and what happens for us in those traumas is it's in a moment. Something shifts. Something goes one thing to another, one life to another unimagined life in in just an instant. And that's part of what I think scares people Mm. um, is that moment. Yeah. Yeah. You explored that and wrote about that a little bit in the photo series called The Drift. That's the one that uses the fluorescent yellow, right? Where you sort of, you compared photography and trauma as moments that freeze time, but then you explored with sort of blur photography, unfreezing that moment and kind of enacting it in different ways? Yeah, so um, they are long exposure photographs. So it's actually, it's really neat. So the camera is recording a a time of light, uh, not a moment of light. And one of my favorites that nobody sort of ever guesses how, and I told you one time that uh, a magician never reveals her secrets, but, <laughs> but I'll tell you, um, it's, it's so magical to me that I just have to share, um, is uh, they're, they're lit with the lights of automotive headlights, and um, it, it casts a really strange pall on the, on the scene, and um, I uh, crawled on my hands and knees to a sign, like a, a road sign, a sort of person working road sign. I think this is where the concept of drifting came. It was like my anchor and um, I crawled. It was actually pretty gravelly and mm. I had really bloody knees at the end of it. Mm. But um, the light recorded looks like a projection of this fluorescent yellow green light, you know, as though I took a video projector and, and shone the light across. But it's actually the, the recording of my body 
reflecting this color as I crawl to this space and then cling to it for quite some time so that you get a ghosting of me um, on the sign. But yeah, this Mm. amazing uh, trail, a record of how I got to that place. So I think that's, yeah, it's unfreezing. You raised the question in the text on that page, does visibility make us safer or more vulnerable? You talked about that a little with that idea of being a sitting duck, but that was just such a provocative question for me. And it actually brought up like Ahmaud Aubrey, the African-American man running through a white neighborhood, right? He's visible because he's African-American, but that didn't make him safer. That made him much more vulnerable. And I just thought that was a really, you know, Mm. powerful question to ask. Oh, I have to say you just gave me goosebumps. Yes. Very much so. And and goosebumps because you surprised me because I had I hadn't gone there yet, or maybe you know, I might not have gone there. And um and that's what I love. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm working on that right now, actually, um, about sexuality and and um as women, right, we always are blamed for like, well, if you just hadn't been wearing that kind of thing. Mm. Um, you know, you, you make yourself conspicuous or visible and what that does to our safety or sense of safety. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's very complicated. And then of course the workers, you know, the day laborers who just, I mean, everybody's got the vests now, you know, Mm -hmm. and they're maybe some of the least visible people in our daily landscape and culture. Right. Yeah. You also have a lot of humor throughout your work. I wanted to talk about the gallery you call Many Hats, in which you use a plastic tub that's used to collect urine, and you wear it as a hat and combine it with other kinds of hats and have the gallery of photos of you in and out of medical garb, showing yourself in many fun and funny guises and personalities. Can you talk a bit about your experience making that set of images and and what those different hats mean to you? Mm. Well, there's something delightful about bringing my audience into the bathroom with me. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's really. Right. Taboo breaker. <laughs> that's right. That's, so I'm talking about stigma. Um, I mean, there are some reasons things are stigmatized, but I think the idea of really wanting to share a a common human experience doesn't have to end, you know, at the taboo versus non-taboo, right? Whatever um, binary divides that is, I don't think necessarily helpful. One of the things that happened to me with the accident is I developed major pelvic floor damage, which affected my ability to go to the bathroom. and having that off limits to be able to say to anyone, you know, I was in um, a room with someone who had just gotten a colostomy bag. And can you imagine your medical trauma being something that just cannot be mentioned in public, right? And so for me, it feels quite liberating to take you into the bathroom with me. And, and, uh, and I, and it's funny, it is, it's awkward. And it's just weird and strange. And, and, you know, but then you have fun with it and make it playful. So people have to yeah. come into it laughing in some way, right? Even if there's pain underneath the laughter. Yeah, and there's laughter over the pain. I mean, it's, it's right. Yeah. So it's, it is genuinely silly and joyful sometimes. Like, I'll just stop while I'm collecting my pee. I do it on a regular basis. I collect every drop for 24 hours. And 
I will shout with joy at the end of my 24 hours when I get to pee straight into the toilet and flush. Mm-hmm. It's a real joy. But um, it is. It's goofy. And I, I want someone to laugh with me about it. And that's a kind of empathy and witness and sharing, too, that can be just as healing or more than sitting and crying with me over it, you know? Like, I mean, it sucks, right? And it's it's because of an iatrogenic, like a uh, medically induced illness. There was a surgical mishap when I had a thyroidectomy and I ended up with a really difficult endocrine disease. So yeah, that sucks. And I don't know, it's, it's goofy. Yeah. You got to do something with that, <laughs> you know, toilet paper. Right. Now that it's... <laughs> I was worried because I wasted a couple of sheets and, you know, (laughs) and that's the white gold, remember? So, right. There was a meme going around toilet paper, the new butt coin. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) See, we have to laugh about it. We do. Right. I mean, as one of my earlier interviews with Michael Sullivan, who's a writer, actor, director, he was saying comedy and tragedy, not that far apart. That's exactly it. And, you know, um, I submitted to a show, a juried show about identity and humor. I had work that I thought for sure fit really well. And the work that fit was not what got accepted. It was this piece in the bathroom where I was launching myself out of the tub, showing that you could be both independent and dependent on these stupid activities of daily living questionnaires. There, there's, it's a binary, yes or no. You mean where they ask you things like, can you get out of the tub by yourself? Yeah. And I would like slick the side of the tub and slick the floor, tile floor, and launch myself like a torpedo out of the tub and and slip like a fish out the bathroom. And you photographed that? Yeah. Yeah. And I looked like a lizard of some sort because it was a long exposure and you couldn't quite, you know, but. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And so it was humorous, but it was that kind of, oh, I can't remember what word you, cringy humor, right? It's like, and this is kind of the space I want to play with. Am I allowed to laugh at this? Is it okay? You know, this is something that's um, uncomfortable, scary, all of these things. Am I allowed to laugh? And if you sort of get stuck in that space, I think it means that you're questioning the dimensionality, you're starting to think about uh, the fleshiness and the empathy uh, that you have for the person that you're not sure if you're laughing at, laughing with, or or just pitying or, or stepping away. So, and I also think humor is a better exit point than entry point. A lot of people talk about humor as an entry. And I think you know, when you go to something that's really dark and really painful and, you know, some of my, my experiences can be pretty traumatic and difficult. Mm. And if there's no way to sort of take away something, like no doggy bag or party favor bag, you walk away with this sense of doom and it's like, all right, whatever, like the world sucks. We already agreed the world sucks. Mm. So you haven't gotten anything out of it. But if you have this exit point of okay, this is kind of like, you know, funny. And, and like, that's, that's, that's your like classic fish or your secret decoder ring. I don't know. It's like whatever. <laughs> and then you have something that you can take away to, to sort of cogitate on. And so, yeah, I think humor is what allows us to take away. Mm, 
You've said that questions are more important to you than answers. Tell me more about that. Uh, from my early childhood, I was raised as a Quaker. Uh, there's really no one way to believe as a Quaker because there's no hierarchy or liturgy or whatever. So people come at it from a whatever perspective. But one of the ideas is continuing revelation, which means that it wasn't all sort of set down in one moment, in one time, in one book, mm-hmm. and that we're constantly asking and it's constantly being revealed and question form in a sense. So they're called queries and and the goal and the way that I work creatively as well is to not answer questions, but to refine the questions, to ask from one to the next, where does this lead me? Um, you know, how do I get to the next place from here? And so it's always seeking and never finding. And and so I think that's that's my process, seeking and never finding. Mm. I think that's a lovely note to conclude our interview on. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. This was so fun. And honestly, I could talk to you for three more hours, but I'll have to do that off the recording. (laughs) That was very joyous. Thank you so much. It's brought up lots of questions and we are allowed to laugh about this. Okay, good. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Off Leash Arts. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. Please join me again next week when I'll be talking with poet Athena Kashyap. Meanwhile, take good care and stay off leash.